Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. In childhood, you have a lot of what turn out to be misconceptions about the way the world works, uh, disappointments in store as you discover that these things are not true. Uh, you may grow up, as I did, believing that the world is full of interesting and, and terrifying monsters, that there are dragons around every corner waiting to be discovered, only to find out as you grow up that no, dragons aren't real. Like unicorns, they are figments of the imagination. And there are other figments of the imagination, which around this time of year, I will not mention. But uh, the discovery of those facts can be disheartening. And you see the world differently. Um, a little disenchanted, let's say. That uh, it's not as, as spectacular as you suspected it was as a child. So these realizations, oftentimes we think of them as, you might, uh, like a loss of innocence. Right? Where there was once a childlike wonder, we come to realize, oh no, it doesn't work that way. But it doesn't always go in that direction. Sometimes we make discoveries about the world that lead us in the opposite direction, not into disenchantment, but into something like re-enchantment. There are moments that, that suggest to us that the world is more than we realized it was, that there is more going on, that there are more powers at work in the world around us than we had recognized. Occasionally in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul alludes to this larger reality. He speaks to us not just of our own hearts, but also of the world around us and the condition of that world, and the reality of what's taking place in all creation. And this is one of those moments in the text that we've just looked at where Paul spends a lot of time speaking to us about creation. Not just us and our concerns, but the whole world, everything that is in it, and how the concerns of that creation mirror the concerns that we have ourselves. So before we see what Paul tells us about creation, we, we need to pick up a theme. Last time, we saw, as, as Paul was speaking, he left off in verse 17, alluding to the reality of suffering. And now he's thinking of suffering again. He says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In saying that, Paul illustrates something that uh, all of the apostles will tell you. That present suffering must always be weighed against future glory. Present suffering must always be weighed against future glory. He says in verse 17, we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. And now when he considers the, the suffering of the present world that, that he is enduring himself, he says, it's not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. No matter how bad the present suffering seems, it's nothing when weighed against future glory. 
It's the same point he makes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, when he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This light momentary affliction. What he's referring to when he says this light momentary affliction is your life. His life is a light momentary affliction. Like everything we care about, everything we have experienced, our our hopes, our dreams, all of that is classed under those impossible words. This light momentary affliction. The pain, the suffering that we have endured. This light momentary affliction. This is a phrase in the context of suffering that honestly, I think you only get to use if you're an apostle. Like, would any of you ever say something like this? Go to people in, in, in times of suffering and loss and say, you know what? This is just a light, momentary affliction. It's, it's just, just momentary. Don't take it too seriously because compared to future glory, you know, this, this is nothing. And you wouldn't say something like that. I mean, you wouldn't talk that way, even when, when the suffering that people endure isn't that serious. You, you wouldn't talk that way even about, like, like, moderate suffering. You're too compassionate for that. But Paul speaks that way about all of it, about all of it. And you might be tempted in seeing this to think that he's making light of suffering, something that, that you don't want to do. He's not making light of suffering and speaking of suffering this way. The suffering has weight. And he's speaking to us as one who has suffered great and terrible things because of his profession of faith. The Apostle Paul knows what it's like to suffer. So he's not making light of suffering. He appreciates the weight of suffering. But if you imagine the weight of suffering on the scale, on one side of the scale there's suffering, and you imagine what could I put on the other side to balance it? It's kind of hard to think of something. It's hard to think of something that makes all the pain worthwhile. Paul is saying that the future glory that he's talking about isn't just weighty enough to balance the pain and suffering. He says that the weight of the glory is such that the pain and suffering seems like nothing. That's how much greater the glory is. It's only with an appreciation of the weight of glory that you could dream of saying something like this about suffering. A present suffering must always be weighed against future glory. Oftentimes we weigh the suffering, but not according to the right scale. Not according to the right scale. Even those of us who have faith in Christ have a hard time, have a hard time considering that this weight of suffering is a light burden in comparison to the glory to come. And yet that's what Paul says to us. Sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, which suggests that that glory is much greater than we have suspected. That when we talk about the glory of God, and we talk about eternity, and we talk about all of those good things in the life to come, 
that we've been guilty of speaking very glibly of things that we have very little comprehension of. That they are more glorious than we can imagine, than we can understand. In order to, to, to serve as Paul says they do, they must be. How is it possible that there could be something that would make our sufferings seem to pale in comparison? It must be something truly wonderful. And so, in a sense, by measuring the weight of our suffering, Paul gives us a way of imagining the weight of glory. To feel uh, what we must carry at our worst, to think about that weight, gives us a way of appreciating the incomprehensible greatness of the glory that is to come. But Paul doesn't belabor this point. He doesn't keep hammering this theme. He actually switches over now and starts talking much more broadly, which I think makes sense because when you start contemplating eternal glory, when you start contemplating things that are yet to be revealed, you are suddenly taken outside of yourself into this larger reality, into a reality that that invites you to think not just of yourself, but of all creation. So in speaking of this future glory, Paul says it's not just us who anticipate this. All creation does. Creation waits with eager longing, he says, for future glory. Like us, creation is waiting, waiting eagerly, longing for the glory that is to come. The creation, he says, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It's not the first time in Romans that Paul has talked about creation doing something that we hadn't anticipated. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, he talks about creation revealing God to human beings. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You remember those words? Uh, Paul is saying that, that the world that you gaze upon and imagine is this kind of inanimate place, in fact, bears witness to God, to his glory, to his invisible attributes, that he has shown us who he is through the work of his hands, so much so that we are without excuse, that we can't claim ignorance because he's surrounded us with a testimony to him. Now he goes back to this idea of creation, but he really tells us more. Creation is not just a passive reflector of God's glory. Here, creation is an active longer. Creation isn't just reflecting the glory or revealing God. Creation is longing. He speaks of creation as if it has a heart, as if it has the ability to want, to yearn. So first, let's think about what it is that creation is longing for. So he says, creation is eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. If you remember when we went through the epistles of Peter, right at the beginning of 1 Peter, in 1 Peter uh, 1 verse 5, Peter, in talking about God's people, God's chosen exiles, says that they're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed In the last time. So there's a salvation that will be revealed in the last time, this future glory. 
then he adds, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So Peter, like Paul, gives us a sense that at the last time there is this revealing that takes place. Something's being revealed. And here, what's being revealed is salvation, the fullness of salvation. Not just the promise of salvation, but salvation actually delivered. Right? You can say, I trust in Jesus, I have been saved, and that's true, but there's another sense in which you are being saved, right? because you have not yet realized all that has been promised in that salvation. You have some of it already, but you do not yet have it all. Right? You have justification, but you're in this process of sanctification. You do not yet have glorification. That glory waits to be revealed, right? And when it is, then your salvation in Christ will be revealed in its fullness. It's interesting, too, that Peter, like Paul, offsets the weight of present suffering against the weight of future glory. He says, now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, which is a funny way to talk to people being killed for their faith. Again, that that if you didn't know better, you would think he's belittling the suffering. He's not doing that. He's just comparing it to the eternal weight of glory that is yet to be revealed. The Apostle John also writes of a future revelation. John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we shall be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. So this last time when our salvation is fully revealed, that's when Jesus appears. And when that happens, John says, we shall be like him. So when I use this word glorification and you ask yourself, well, what does that mean? That's what it means. Being made like Jesus. Being made to be like him. Well, what will make us like him? What experience would possibly have the power to make us like Jesus? Well, this is what the Apostle Paul writes about at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. The experience that will make us like him is seeing him as he is. Face-to-face communion. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face-to-face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That's what we look forward to, that face-to-face communion with Christ, that moment where he reveals himself to us, where we know him as he is, and we become like him. That's what's waiting to happen. That's the revelation that we're looking forward to, that creation is looking forward to, when creation eagerly longs for the revelation of the sons of God. That's what it is. And it's not just us who are restored. It is all things. It is all things that are restored. In Acts 3.21, Peter says that, uh, speaking of Christ, he says, Christ is the one whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Which is why in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. So that, God's plan of restoration 
goes beyond just us. It also encompasses creation itself. So that's what creation eagerly longs for. But ask yourself, what does it mean to say that creation waits with eager longing for something? Right? This is language that's similar to the way Jesus spoke at the triumphal entry. Remember when uh, the Pharisees rebuked his followers for worshiping him, Jesus said, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Emphasizing the idea that creation has a stake in what's happening that we just don't see, don't imagine is the case. It challenges our assumption about an inanimate, neutral creation. It's also a reminder that nature itself wants to serve and glorify God, and that our sin and our exploitation of creation has consequences, not just to us, but to the world itself. So creation longs because, like us, creation is in bondage. For the creation was subjected to futility, Paul writes, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So it's not just human nature that's been corrupted by sin. The whole of creation has been corrupted by sin. Not only can we not trust what comes naturally to us, but we can't trust, strangely enough, what comes naturally to nature. Because all of creation is under the influence of sin. This is why social Darwinism as a, as a moral project was such an abject failure. It made sense, if you thought about it, it made sense if, if nature is all there is, there is any morality, we should learn that morality from the lessons of nature. How can it be wrong to do what is natural? But if you go and learn your morality from nature, you learn uh, what Jack London called the law of tooth and fang. And the results are very ugly indeed. So that we are happily inconsistent, not living our moral lives according to our uh, our beliefs about the world that we live in. Because nature itself has been corrupted by sin. Death is just the ultimate example of that. There are many other smaller echoes of it. Creation has been subjected to futility, Paul says. And that word futility should make you think. It should get your Old Testament juices flowing. Right, because this is what the book of Ecclesiastes refers to when it talks about meaninglessness or vanity. The futility that creation has been subjected to is the vanity or meaninglessness of life under the sun. Not just that we, as a result of sin, have been corrupted, but that the way of the world no longer reflects what it ought to be. That there is an injustice baked into the way of things that you can see in nature, or where the strong pillage the weak. And we tell ourselves, well, there must be nothing wrong in it. That's just nature. But then you watch it happening on a documentary and think, uh, 
it feels kind of bad. <sighs> the prophet Jeremiah spoke of this futility and the bondage to it as mourning. He writes, how long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, he will not see our latter end. How long will the land mourn? And then he says, for the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away. Not for their own evil, not because the beasts were bad and the birds were bad, but for the evil of those who dwell in it. Nature, like us, longs for freedom from bondage, but nature, unlike us, is not responsible for the bondage that it finds itself in. Nature was brought into captivity, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, because of Adam's sin, because of the dominion that human beings had over creation, the fall of human beings brought all that they ruled over under condemnation. Jeremiah, speaking of us, says they have made it a desolation. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. Because of our sin, all creation mourns. We see in verse 21 of Romans 8 that what creation is longing for is a kind of twofold freedom. Freedom from bondage, but also freedom for glory. Not just to escape from the bondage, but also to realize the glory that is to come. Be released from captivity, but also to be enabled to be what creation was made to be. That's the longing. And then we see suffering again, but suffering with a difference. Paul compares this, this yearning, this longing to the pains of childbirth. which is a great example of pain that we are accustomed to weighing against future glory. We weigh the pain of childbirth against the weight of future glory. So in using this analogy, he demonstrates to us how we ought to see these things. Something wonderful is coming. And compared to that, this present suffering will be worth it. Remember, pain in childbirth is actually a consequence of sin. That's part of the curse. It's not that the pain is good, but rather the evil that we endure in solidarity with Christ will seem like nothing compared to the glory that we gain in him. So in that sense, creation's longing teaches us about our own longing. Not only the creation, Paul says, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we see creation longing and it points us back to our own longing. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit is already at work in us. Fruit has come, but we're far from glory. It's precisely because we've been awakened to the possibility that we now long for it. That the fact that we don't possess it hurts in a way that it didn't hurt before. There's a time before Christ when you didn't worry so much that you weren't like him. It didn't really matter. But now it does. And you eagerly long for it. 
And that longing reveals that already, not yet, that we talked about. We saw last time the adoption that we have as sons through uh, Jesus Christ. We're justified by faith and are adopted as the sons and daughters, the fellow heirs of Jesus Christ that we possess already, but we don't have the inheritance yet. That inheritance will come. It is not yet ours, and it won't be until the resurrection. So whether we realize it or not, all of our little longings, all of our desires, our our eager expectations of the future, all of these things point to the resurrection. All of these things point to Christ to come and the fulfillment of all the promises that have been made. We talk about longing all the time here at Grace. We long for more grace, for more depth, for more community. It's our longing that has brought us here and that keeps us together. We're not a, a people, a family, in faith bonded together by the fact that we have all the answers. We're bonded together by the fact that we share similar longings for more grace and more depth and more community. But the grace that we long for is to see Christ face to face. The depth that we long for is to know him fully, even as we have been fully known. The community that we long for is the communion of the saints in the new creation. And every time we find more grace, more depth, and more community in this life, it's only a foretaste of what has been promised. It's not even worth comparing to the glory that is to come. And this is what we need to hear. Say whatever you want about philosophy and belief systems. But human beings are driven by desire. And if you want to understand us, you you have to understand that desire that drives us. The problem is that although we're driven by longing, most of us fail to realize what it is we're longing for. And so we seek to fulfill those desires in all the wrong things. And so Paul here points us to the true font that can satisfy the thirst, that can quench the thirst, that drives our longings. When you turn to the wrong hopes, when you place your confidence in the wrong saviors, all that results is a plunge deeper into discouragement, deeper into frustration and bondage and corruption. This is what turns dreamers into cynics. But if you start to realize that in this life, you will only ever taste the the fulfillment of those desires, that the quenching of that thirst can only ever happen when you come to see Jesus face to face and changes forever how you see this life how you live it. If you struggle to believe in the gospel at all, it may be that the reason for that is that you're so accustomed to giving weight to the things of this life that the promises of the gospel don't seem real enough or heavy enough to strike the balance. This life matters too much to put any hope in a life to come. You trust in Christ, but you struggle 
to maintain your hope, it may be that you're guilty of exactly the same thing. Although we pay lip service to the glory that is to come, the concerns we really care about, the concerns of this life, life to come, seems so distant and unreal in comparison. But it's only because we allow ourselves to forget how fleeting and how futile this life actually is. In both cases, the problem is the same. It's putting our hope in something short of Christ. And so Paul concludes by speaking to us of hope. For in this hope we were saved. This is the gospel that you were saved in. This is the hope that you were promised. Not satisfaction of your desires in this life. Not an end to your suffering in this life. The gospel that you first believed pointed you to a hope in the life to come. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, he says, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In other words, don't be discouraged that you don't see these hopes being realized, because that's the nature of hope. If you immediately received everything that was promised, if the moment that you had faith, if you said, Uh, Lord, save me. And at that moment, every problem was solved. Every pain ended. Everything was healed. There would be no promise left to hope for. And we've not only been saved, but saved into a hope. So we must hope for what we do not see. Rather than being discouraged by this, Paul says we should wait patiently. That this should teach us how to wait patiently. In other words, the situation that causes your discouragement is not a bug, it's a feature. It is meant to be this way for your sanctification, for your good. There is a reason why it works the way it works. You are allowing yourself to be discouraged by suffering that was given to you as a means of sanctification, to teach you to patiently wait. This is actually the key to understanding how all of this talk about creation fits into the larger scheme of chapter 8. If you had to ask yourself, what is it that Romans chapter 8 is speaking about? What is the theme? I would say the theme is what difference does having the Holy Spirit make? Because in chapter 7, we saw what what the struggle against sin looks like apart from the, the help of the Holy Spirit. And now over and over again, we're being given kind of... Uh, Almost, this is maybe not the best way to think about it. It's almost as if the, Paul's giving us uh, the Holy Spirit as hooks to hang certain things on, like assurances on. Like you struggle with sin, but because you have the Spirit and the Spirit is at work in you, you can have hope that what has begun in you will be finished. But you can have hope. The Spirit is there. It makes a difference in the sense that you can faithfully endure. And here again, he brings us to hope. He demonstrates to us that it's not only us who must wait with eager longing, but we live in a world where we are surrounded. We're all creation in the very same way, longs eagerly for the same thing that we do. We're surrounded by longing, surrounded by waiting. And that what gives us hope when we must patiently wait is the Spirit. Is the Spirit. 
the Spirit is given to us, not only as a sign and seal, not only as a guarantee, but here as a comfort so that we can endure patiently. The hope that sustains us is the work of the Spirit. We talked about this in Sunday school briefly, but the Westminster Confession says God not only ordains salvation, he ordains all the means. So God actually controls all of the details, all of the pieces of the process, the parts of the puzzle that that bring you from, from rebellion to glorification. He doesn't just make it possible, but he does all the work. And he's there every step of the way. He's created the whole structure in which it happens. And here Paul is giving us a little part of that structure. That as we long and as we wait, we do so encouraged by the power of the Spirit. So if you struggle to believe this gospel at all, or if you struggle to maintain your hope in it with uh, present concerns weighing you down, the answer turns out to be the same, which is to seek out the comfort, the illumination, the guidance of the Spirit who is given to us by Christ for this very reason. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.